Welcome to the Navigating Hollywood podcast. My name is Alan Wolf, and I'm a filmmaker and an author. This episode is an encore of my interview with filmmaker Scott Teams, who had two number one movies in 2023, Insidious, The Red Door, and The Exorcist Believer. I hope you enjoy the show. Today, we are joined by filmmaker Scott Teams. His projects include Halloween Kills that he co-wrote with David Gordon Green and Danny McBride, and upcoming will be The Exorcist, which he also wrote with those same writers, and Stephen King's Firestarter, which he adapted for the screen and will executive produce. Scott adapted Stephen King's The Breathing Method, which is in development with Spyglass for director Gore Verbinski, and he wrote the upcoming sequel, Insidious 5. <laughs> Scott also wrote the screenplay adaption of the best-selling novel, Cutting for Stone. Scott's previous credits as a writer-director include the award-winning films That Evening Sun, Holbrook Twain, and, most recently, The Quarry. Scott was a writer and executive producer of the popular Netflix series, Narcos Mexico, and he wrote, directed, and produced three seasons of the acclaimed Peabody Award-winning Sundance TV drama, Rectify. Wow, Scott, you're so impressive. (laughs) Welcome to the show. Thanks, Alan. Good to see you, buddy. Great to have you. My first question, after reading through all the incredible work you've done is, why don't you smile in any of your pictures? <laughs> uh, I have to keep up the mystique, you know. That's what I wondered. I wondered if you were setting up like a persona of like, I am a serious person. No. I make serious stories. But I looked. I really looked for pictures of you smiling. I couldn't find one of them. That's fine. Wow. Oh, man. I feel ashamed now. That could... <laughs> I'm just campaigning for at least one smiling picture of you somewhere. You and my wife both. That would be a good win for all (laughs) all of us involved. (laughs) Uh, That's funny. You know, I don't have, look, I don't have any lips. It's weird. I don't know. I don't like smiling. Sorry. Trying to keep up that image. Oh, (laughs) no, I'm kidding. Well, I, yeah, I think you've got a great smile. So hopefully we'll see more of your smile. Well, the work you create is very intense, thrilling, and dramatic. How did you develop those sensibilities? I guess I was just born with a bit of a jaundiced eye and a sort of healthy dose of pessimism. It goes along with a non-smiling uh, vibe. Uh, Alan, I don't know. I, I, I didn't purposefully develop them, I suppose. I, I Those have just always been the kinds of stories I've been drawn to and... and uh, Ever since, not only as a, f- a filmmaker and writer, but also as a film watcher, as a young person, I, hmm. I was just I always felt myself drawn to those darker stories. And I think I've spent a lot of time trying to figure out why and uncover some of those reasons. And uh, or as part of the exploration of sort of some of the stuff I write about is sort of searching for those reasons and, and why I'm drawn to those stories. Did you grow up in a very serious household? Not serious. I mean, I come from Georgia. A lot of laughter. My dad is a very funny person. And, um, you know, just lots of jokes. I think I probably always felt like like an outsider. I think I was trying to reconcile a lot of these different 
feelings as a young person, like feeling like I didn't quite fit and didn't belong. Coming from the South, there are certain sort of expectations of masculinity that prevail, not just in the South, but it was in that mm-hmm. way where I come from. And, and um, so for me, as a young kid who was like, there were sort of three sort of facets of who I was. I think I was this sort of jock kid, like football player, like all my friends were. There was this person who was had this new faith in high school trying to sort of figure out what I believed about God, uh, if I believed mm-hmm. about God. And then there was this, this artist who was sort of silently mm-hmm. blossoming over here in the darkness and trying <laughs> to figure out how to reconcile those those things. And they didn't all coexist mm-hmm. very well. So I think feeling that the wrestling uh, of those of, with those things, with those ideas, who was I, who did I want to be, how do I become that person in this place? Do I have to leave this place to become that person? You know, lots of those questions that hmm. tended to push me toward more dramatic kind of stories, perhaps, and to, that, that I could ask deeper, bigger questions, I guess. When you were growing up, did you feel like the artistic side of you, you had to hide? No, not hide. I, mean, I don't think it was like frowned upon in any active way. I just think I was interested in stuff that, other people weren't like when I was in high school and I got into like European cinema, there was nobody around that I could go see. And I liked metal. I, you know, I listened to, I mean, listened to earth. I listened to like, I listened to heavy doom metal. I listened to, I was always like listening. I just off the beaten path a little bit from other folk, but I also, you know, love people. And I, and I had lots of friends and I I was felt very fortunate Mm -hmm. to grow up in a really, just a, a warm environment with with uh, people I liked to be around. So you know, it was it wasn't like I'm not suggesting that I was like some kid who had no place. It was more like the person inside of me was trying to figure out who they were, and uh, mm-hmm. versus the person I was was as a, as a child. I mean, I'm still trying to find out who I am. You know, it's it's not like I'm in my 40s and it's still. I mean, hopefully, we're all growing and evolving, not settling. For who we are, and, and that's certainly what I'm trying to do. Well, something I really appreciate about your work is its level of authenticity. I remember watching Rectify and and marveling about the realness and depth of the story and yeah. characters. What was your experience like writing, directing, and producing that series? I mean, it was really probably the most fulfilling creative experience I've had. I, I um, in mm. part because it was the most collaborative. There were four seasons of that show. I worked on the last three. It was created by a guy named Ray McKinnon, who I had, who was in my first film. So I, I directed Ray in That Evening Sun, my first movie. But he yeah. also produced that movie. So we got very close. And then he asked me to come work on his show a few years later. It was like a family in the best ways. A lot of honesty and just a freedom to really express yourself, to push for things, to fight for things, to tell the best story, because we all believed so deeply in the story we were telling. We all believed in Ray's vision so much, and he empowered us to bring ourselves to that story. It just made you made you passionate for it. And, and, and it was doubly so for me, because the story was set in Georgia. It was about people and places that I knew. Ray is from Georgia, so we had that extra level of connection I had that extra level of connection to the material, which made me that much more passionate about it, which I think is a huge reason why you felt that authenticity in that show. Mm. 
because it, we were we were people who lived that and um, and knew that world and those characters. It was my first time working in television, so to have the space and the time to explore deeper character over a period of that show was thirty episodes, I think, in total, and so having that long period of time to really, it's more like a, a long novel, you know, really being able, that's the beauty of television to tell long form stories mm. and dig deeper. And not every single moment, every single beat has to advance the plot or the story as it has to usually in, in feature films. So it was just a real, you just, you're able to have so much more nuance and subtlety when you're doing that kind of long form storytelling. How did you first get started in storytelling? I always wanted to make movies as long as I can remember. You know, I was always the kid who had the camera. My dad, he would have, he was always like what we would call now an early adopter. It was not like a phrase back when we were growing up, but like we had the first video camera on my block. We had the first VCR, you know, and, and we had this like black and white video camera we bought like in 1980 that was court attached to the, literally attached to the VCR. But like the thing with my dad is he would never then update the stuff. So we had that same camera when I graduated from high school 15 years later. But we, I had a camera in my hands from a very early age, a video camera, mm. Super 8, whatever. Mm. And so I started making movies in middle school. I had a teacher in the eighth grade who really encouraged me to, and, and let me make little movies in lieu of book reports. And so I made these little movies in eighth grade. All through eighth grade, I made like... We were doing like Greek mythology and I did this story on Hercules, a little movie, but I made it about his two little brothers and I, it's called, uh, Mercules and Jercules, the two little brothers. <laughs> of, I mean, so dumb. A classic. Classic. <laughs> and so I did that and we just made these little movies and, but she really encouraged me and kind of gave me that permission to sort of try that out and explore mm. that sort of part of who I was becoming as an artist or who I wanted to be as mm. an artist. And it went on from there. And so I, I went to mm. film school. Where did you go to film school? I went to Georgia State University in Atlanta. The whole time I was in college, it was in Atlanta. It was like, Atlanta's the next place. Atlanta's the next place for film. And we're all like, yeah, whatever. It's not going to happen. It's not going to happen. And I graduated and it didn't happen. So I moved to New York. And of course, moved to New York. And like a year later, the Georgia film explodes. That's okay. Because I'm glad I, it wasn't happening because I, I might have been... Uh, influence to stay. And I think the best thing I ever did was to move away. And why is that? Because it made me get out of my comfort zone. It made me have to really decide that this was what I was going to do. Because moving to New York, especially where the cost of living is so high and I'm there every day and money's just burning a hole in my pocket. I was newly married. I got married right out of college. Every day you're there, it matters because money's, money's mm. just going out the door. And there's no mm. time to screw around. And so I think for me, if I had been in the comfort zone of my hometown, I would have, mm. there's the tendency to fall back on a backup plan to like, well, I can mm. still work my job and do this on the weekends or whenever I have time. And I know myself and I would, I need to put my feet to the fire. And I think mm. knowing that I had a, a wife to provide for and we, a couple years later, we had our first child. And so Growing a family, not wanting to be impeded by living in New York, wanting to like, we wanted to have a family, so we were going to do it. But that just creates, obviously, a higher cost of living, more pressure. But it was good pressure because 
I had to really ask myself why I wanted to do this. You know, is this really my passion enough to pursue it? Do I have the talent? I had to be really honest with myself. All these questions that you must ask that I think you ask a lot quicker when you are paying, you know, $4,000 a month in rent. And, uh, you know, you're working, making $10 an hour selling shoes in Long Island City, which is what I was doing at the time. I just felt like it really helped me focus and it really helped me not waste time. And I think I progressed a little quicker probably than I would have if I just stuck around Atlanta. So did that experience in New York then lead you to developing That Evening Sun as your first feature film? Indirectly. So I moved to New York and I got a job. And there was a community of artists there called The Haven that I got involved in pretty soon after landing there. This was artists of all types. I mean, New York's great because there's actors and singers and dancers and and uh, writers and playwrights, screenwriters, all kinds. And so we had this community of artists. We were supporting each other, meeting together regularly, all in our 20s, mostly young folk, you know, just trying to pursue their dreams. And so that was a great community. Through that, I met a guy named Terrence Berry, who ended up producing all my short films. And then he produced That Evening Sun. And, and Terrence also funded me to go to Act One. He, he helped me. I couldn't even afford to take this screenwriting class called Act One, which is was seminal for me. I took it in 2001 mm. in New York. And mm. it was a huge huge deal for me to, and I met a lot of people, made a lot of connections that all were building on top of each other. But Terrence, I couldn't, like I said, I was paying 10 bucks, making 10 bucks an hour selling shoes. And I, I couldn't afford the tuition to go to this summer program. And mm. uh, Terrence, to his great credit, and I always thank him for this, put the money up for me to go. He believed in me, put his money where mm. his mouth is, said, I want to be a producer. I want to produce your work. I'm going to send you to this thing. And he did. And um, that was the beginning of our partnership. And we made a few films together. And then I wrote a bunch of bad scripts. I was in New York for about five years. Wrote a bunch of bad scripts, made a lot of short films, each one a little less bad than the one before it. And played some festivals and that kind of stuff. And kind of got my sea legs sort of in doing, making movies and writing and sort of figuring it out. And I moved to Los Angeles in 2005. And the first thing I wrote when I got here was That Evening Sun. And that, and then that took about three years to get it made. But Terrence was a huge part of that. And having that New York community was a huge part of that. And those people are mm -hmm. still my friends today. And a lot of them live here in Los Angeles. It's just been the through line. Having that community has been such an important part of my story and my journey. For me and my wife and our family, it's been imperative. I saw some of those guys just a couple of days ago, and and we mm. see each other regularly, and it's um, it's invaluable. And how would you say, looking back, that that experience making The Evening Sun shaped you as a filmmaker? It's the first movie you make, your first feature. It's, it's seminal in so many ways, but it and it set the table for everything that was to come. But just as a, but personally, it really just affirmed this hope that I had had, that the kinds of stories I wanted to tell, which to a large degree remained small Southern stories about men and violence and God and how those things mm. intersect and collide and explode together, that those kinds of mm. stories could connect to people. That Evening Sun, you know, it didn't 
it didn't make any money, but it, it won some awards. It got me representation. It, it built it built a ton of bridges for my career, mm-hmm. which was great. But more than that, it connected with people. And it didn't connect with mm-hmm. 100 million people, but it connected mm-hmm. with people when it when they saw it, when they had a chance to see it. And that's why I I want to tell stories. There's great value in escapism, and, and those things are, are you know have a place in the world for sure. It's just not what I want to do, despite, hmm. you know, my resume, how you might perceive my resume, especially writing studio <laughs> movies, but, and we can talk about that, but it's, but it's, um, I don't see them that way, you know? Well, your newest film is Halloween Kills. What was it like continuing the story of the serial killer, Mike Myers? It, it was a thrill to work on a franchise. That was my first sort of franchise movie. And that was fun for me. It was was more fun to work with my old friend David Gordon Green. And that was the first time we'd had a chance to work together. We've been friends for a long time. He was a, a real early supporter. David is a kind of guy who just really helps his friends and helps people that he believes in. David was mm. a, a real big advocate for that evening son. In fact, he emailed mm. Roger Ebert and asked him and told him about the movie and told him to watch it. And Ebert watched it and reviewed it and, which is one of the mm. kind of great thrills of my early career. Um, wow. And so David's always just been a friend and a fan and a supporter. So this is the first time we'd had a chance to work together, which was a ton of fun. And it was also great to work with Blumhouse again, who I've made done several projects with. And this is our first released film. And those guys are fantastic. And so it was just fun to work with my friends you know, on that movie. And when you get to make a big, scary blockbuster movie it's a different kind of thrill and it sort of scratches that itch that you have as a kid when you want to make movies and the review of the film variety wrote quote never was there a film truer to its name they've sliced up with kitchen knives hollowed out with a fluorescent strip light bisected with a chainsaw and impaled on banisters the body count is phenomenal we love this stuff you know we do unquote (laughs) Why do you think audiences love to see that kind of violence? I mean, that review is a little over the top. I, I would, well, I would start uh, by saying I'm not entirely convinced this is a healthy love. Um, in fact, mm. often it's not. Um, mm. And what interests me is really trying to scrutinize that fascination with the violence through the mm. acts of violence themselves in, st- in some instances, mm. like a Halloween kills I me mean, to understand our complicity as members of the audience in that violence. That's something mm. we're really interrogating about uh, in Halloween kills. I mean, that's literally what the film is about. It's about mob violence and herd mentality and mm. the sort of disastrous ramifications thereof. And, now, look, is it lofty for me to sit here and say Halloween Kills is about, like, has all these big ideas? Maybe. But if you're not trying to say something, then why the hell are we are we doing any of it? Like, I, I'm not I'm not interested in just killing people. Mm. For me, this stuff means something. It's not violence for violence sake. Now, look, at the end of the day, I don't direct the movie and I don't. I can write it. I can try to give some sort of substance to what's happening. Ultimately, it lives its own life. The director makes his choices, her choices, and the audience has their own interpretation of that. And people are going to choose to see what they want to see. But I, I certainly am 
at least trying to talk about something a little bit deeper inside of this shell. I mean, that's the beauty of working on a big movie that's going to reach 100 million people or whatever it is. You have a big, much bigger platform to say things mm. and much bigger responsibility, mm. sure. I'm trying to ride that line and find that balance. You can be a lot more direct and subtle and nuanced when you're making the quarry or that evening sun because, you know, there's much, much, much smaller budgets, but you also have a much, mm. much smaller audience. And so mm. there's a trade-off, you know, you have to be a little more blunt maybe or a little less overt over here for the bigger audience, but you're saying something. And it's all mm. about threading the needle and finding a way to have a point of view. A point of view is all I care about. And I want to see, I don't care if I agree or disagree. I want you to have a point of view. I'm interested in that, in your perspective on things as a storyteller. If you're telling, if I'm watching your movie, I want to know what you think about this. I don't want some mm. neutral position. I want to just like mm. express something. And, and I'm interested in that. Mm. So I'm just trying to do the same thing. IndieWire wrote that Halloween Kills is unclouded by conscience, remorse, or delusions of morality. Is that what you were going for? <laughs> well, I would certainly hope not. I mean, I hadn't read that review until you you uh, you told me about it, and uh, I hadn't read any mm. reviews really. And all I can do is sort of shrug my shoulders. I mean, I, that review mm. in particular is hard to take seriously when it's. It's got so much snark, and it's a very snarky review, which is totally fine. I mean, mm. I, it's fine. I'm, I'm not here to, to criticize the critics. When you sign up to write a franchise sequel, you know, I mean, you know, I'm writing Insidious 5. I, I, I'm writing the, <laughs> the Exorcist. I wrote Halloween Kills. You know that comes with the territory. People love to, like, just shoot bullets mm. at the thing that's been around for a long time, and that's totally fine. Mm. I, I don't mind that. But like I was saying, I believe there's something deeper happening in Halloween Kills. And some people will be willing mm. to take a deeper look into what the film is saying, and some people won't. And that's okay. I wrote it for the people that will. That's what happens with art. I mean, like, it, it's people are going to misinterpret it. I would say that's a misinterpretation, but that's okay. That's their interpretation of it. And hopefully, there is room for interpretation. If it's too didactic, then it's... What's the point? It's like not a pamphlet. Art, hopefully, is more subtle and nuanced, and it's about the whole experience. And therefore, it's open to an array of interpretations. I try so hard not to say some people are going to get it and some people aren't. I don't like that language because maybe there's, maybe there's nothing to get. Maybe I'm fooling myself. Maybe it's all, maybe it's, what does he say? Unclouded by conscience or delusions of morality i mean come on maybe that's maybe that is maybe that's what it's, it is but it's like, hard because when you, you know. hear the bad stuff like that's the stuff that kind of stays with you and the great stuff tend to be like oh yeah and find reason to, to dismiss that so sure. i yeah. apologize for not reading the wonderful things that people are writing about <laughs> halloween kills no it's good look it's fine I, I like to interrogate this stuff i think it's interesting when i did read those reviews there seems to be an unwillingness to engage the movie at anything other than the surface level which is which is fine it's to be expected but hopefully audiences will and we'll see something mm -hmm. underneath well you mentioned when you're growing up that you experienced a faith journey can you describe what your spiritual journey has looked like yeah, I, I grew up in the church. You know, when you're from the South, it sort of like comes, at least in the 80s, when you grew up in the 80s, it sort of, and before that, obviously, it comes with the territory. That you're just expected to go to church on Sunday? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. It's a cultural uh -huh. expectation. 
And then in the 90s, as I got into high school, that expectation began to shift, you know, and, and I think there was a change really where that expectation went away, that obligation went away. People stopped going to church. My family sort of stopped going mm. to church because there wasn't a judgment anymore in the community mm. if you weren't, if you didn't mm. go. Mm. Um, but then I started started going to this group called Young Life that I uh, found through my high school, my friends there. And that's where I sort of had an encounter with with Jesus. And what does that mean to have an encounter with Jesus? Hey, I was introduced to this like idea that God was a personal God, was available to people to have a relationship with. This is an idea that I hadn't really ever had before, even though I had grown up in church. Hadn't heard it in that way. So I started wrestling with that, then just had some encounters and some personal spiritual experiences that just confirmed to me there was something bigger happening, some things that I know to be true in my own life, and then began to see the Bible in a different way, began to read it in a different way. And that is how I connected with Jesus. Mike Flanagan, who's directed many horror films and TV shows such as The Haunting of Hill House, said recently, quote, horror affords us the opportunity to really look at ourselves and the things that scare us, that disturb us as a society and individuals. It's incredibly powerful, unquote. Do you agree? For sure. I mean, I I, I was never a big horror fan growing up, and not even as I became a, a young writer. I was talking to Scott Derrickson. He was sort of explaining his philosophy on horror. He had he had made some horror movies at that point. This is probably 15 years ago. And he was just, he was saying how horror is the one genre that treats evil as a real thing. And mm. that naturally opens up uh, so many opportunities for spiritual exploration and conversation. And, and that's why he was attracted to horror. And that provoked me to look at it in a new way. And it was not long after that, that I began to pursue my first uh, horror project. And, and so, mm-hmm. and I found that to be true. Evil can be treated as a real entity and therefore dealt with on mm-hmm. a seri- in a serious way. That can provide a lot of interesting opportunities. I mean, I think that's what Halloween ultimately is about. I find it refreshing when movies don't psychologize evil away, when they don't try to say evil is something only caused by circumstances. In The Ring, which was a remake of the Japanese film Ringu and directed by Gore Verbinski, who you're now working with, the main character thinks the girl is doing evil things because she had a terrible childhood. But I love the twist when she realizes the girl is doing it because she's evil. (laughs) And, you know, with your spiritual perspective, do you feel like that gives you a different point of view on the issue of evil when you approach these projects? I hope so. I mean, I think another film that does a similar thing is Silence of the Lambs, where ultimately the, the viewer is forced to reconcile the fact that Hannibal Lecter is just evil. The trick is... As a person of faith trying to navigate these waters, is is Hannibal Lecter evil, or is there evil inside of him? Can Hannibal Lecter be redeemed in the grand mm. sense of the word, in the Christian sense of the word? These are the questions. That's what the quarry is ultimately about. I mean, like it's really about this guy who's who murdered people, who is at the end of the movie is asking for forgiveness. Does he deserve it? 
And that's really mm-hmm. what the not spoiler alert if you haven't seen it. <laughs> but it's <laughs> but I mean that's what the movie's about, and you have to wrestle with that um, question. But I, you know, and of course there can be obviously this, the psychological damage that comes from abuse is a real thing, and that can cause people to do terrible things. But also, evil exists in the world. I believe that, and that's mm-hmm. also a thing. And you can let it in, and you can nourish it in other ways, and you can not mm-hmm. defend yourself against it or whatever. I just love wrestling with the questions, and I like that the ring does that, and and Lambs does that, and and. Mm-hmm. I'm trying to do it too in my own little way. How have you used your background to approach the upcoming sequel to The Exorcist? You know, it's early days still with that, and um, but I think it's just it's just exciting to have a platform to explore these ideas in a more overt way. I mean, I, I think that's mm-hmm. what's interesting, and to have collaborators who are open to these ideas. I mean, I think one reason they like having me around is because I do share a certain perspective and i have a, a faith and my that's a big part of my life and but it's not for everyone on that team and so you know i can add a different perspective i mean that's really how the best ideas are made rectify hmm. rectify often gets quoted as being one of the great portrayals of a christian character on television which it was fascinating this character tawny and i think the reason is because She's not a caricature. She's a sort of warts and all mm-hmm. representation of a person, a full human. And the reason that, that she was able to be created as a full human, in large part because of Ray, she was Ray's creation. But as we moved her and progressed her through those four seasons, the last three years, that writer's room was made up. There were five of us, including our assistant who worked with us a lot. And in that room... The five of us, you had a Protestant, me, you had a sort of lapsed Catholic, you had a non-practicing Jew, you had a secular humanist, and you had a stone-cold atheist. And the five of us wrote this show together. And so what happens wow. is you everything has to pass the sniff test. Everything, mm. nothing, no propaganda gets through. Mm. It has to be mm. honest and truthful. And if it's truthful, it will make its way through that gauntlet of, of people. All different perspectives. And so for that character, anything that I wrote or anyone else wrote that smelled like propaganda, it wouldn't make it through. What you end up with is a refined sort of version of a, of a, of a real person, a real character. You need to be tested. You need to put your ideas in the world and have people push back on them. That's collaboration. That is... That's truth-seeking. That's honesty. That's a humility to be wrong. And if God is real, if Jesus is real, if these ideas are true, then there's no harm and there's no fear in putting them out in the world and letting, letting them live. Because if they're real, then they will survive. If they're true, mm. I, you know, I don't have to protect them. If, if God mm. is real, I don't have to protect him. He will be real. There's power in that, I think. Freedom in that. Freedom as a writer to explore all the questions, all the concerns, all the anxieties that come along with living in the world. Man, it's hard to live in the world. It's hard. It's hard mm. to make movies. It's hard to tell stories. It's hard to live in the world and not get, not come away with a bunch of bumps and bruises. But if you have a faith, in, then you don't have to try to protect or, or deny that, you know, and uh, mm. it can it can pour out through your work and your art 
And I think the more honest art makes for a, a better world. That's just mm. my opinion. I assume the new Firestarter film stars Drew Barrymore. She's an adult. She's still setting everything on fire. Is that, is I that pitched, right? I pitched that, but nobody went for it. Uh, <laughs> I got shut down. Yeah. No, it's not. It's, it's a retelling of the story. What's What's cool about that is I've done, I've done a couple of King adaptations. What I liked about the opportunity to do Firestarter was that we already have the original movie, which is a pretty pretty by the book, literally by the book adaptation. It follows the book pretty mm. closely. And so that's already there. That exists. And so I had freedom to explore, you know, a sort of another way to take to tell that story. It's the same story, essentially, but it's just, you know, another way in. We don't need the same thing we mm. already saw. I'm trying to create a new right. perspective. Yeah, I'm excited. That movie shot this past summer, and so it'll come out next year sometime. And and uh, it's very exciting. Now, when you're adapting something for Stephen King, do you work directly with him? No. In part, it's because he's got, any at any point, 30 to 40 projects in development. I mean, like, and he's writing his own wow. stuff still. It's just, it's incredible. Mm -hmm. But, you know, King has this wonderful, amazing thing he does where he will let people option his stories for a dollar. And if the stories are available, and there's very few stories available. But 10 years ago, there were a few more, and I got... I had, I optioned one. That's how I sort of broke through ultimately to, to kind of start a career writing more commercial movies is I optioned the breathing method myself for a dollar from Stephen King through his agents. It comes with this contract, which is really intense. <laughs> and But the, the core of it is basically you have six months from the time they give you the contract to deliver a script to Stephen King, who then has uh, script approval. And so... I and if he approves the script, you keep going. If he doesn't, you're done, and you've wasted a dollar in six months of your life. So this is true of any even studio films. He's he's optioning them for a dollar. Yep, he can. Yeah, he will because he gets paid when it gets made. So he can afford to do that. Like I've optioned several stories, and if I'm negotiating for a short story like That Evening Sun or a novel like The Quarry, I'm I'm, I'm optioning these things. I might pay two grand or five grand or twelve hundred dollars or whatever to get to lease the rights for a year to try to make the movie, and then you got to pay for it when you finally make it. Well, King doesn't need your two thousand dollars, right? So he just says, hmm. "Have it for a dollar. Try it out. See if you can get it made. See if you can write a good script. And when you do, then he gets paid on the end, other side of it. So he makes his money when it hmm. gets made." Or he gets a gross or whatever. So it's a fantastic system because it lets young writers like me. So I option it. He reads the script. He says yes or no. And then you go on and that's it. I've had very little interaction with him. But he so far has liked what I've done with his stuff. And he's approved everything. So we'll see. How do you stay spiritually healthy in Hollywood? I don't think it's any different in Hollywood than anywhere else, really. Mm. I mean, requires discipline and commitment and focus and it just has to be a priority for me it really is about grounding it's about grounding and my faith grounding in my family and which keeps you humble i mean like hmm. when you have kids you know kids will make you humble real fast they don't care what movie you made or whatever was there a moment during your career when you felt discouraged and wondered what your next project would be what time is it? 
yes, I feel that way <clears throat> just about every day. But that's what you know. That's what faith is. I mean, that's what I think. That's huh. you just keep climbing that hill. Best advice I ever got when I when I took Act One. And these two writers, Chris and Kathy Riley, great writers, they came to teach us one day and they said, look, every one of our friends we know who have made it, and by making it, they meant simply that they make their living as a writer. They don't have to have another job. For all of our friends who do that, it's taken them on average about 10 years. And yeah. I had come to New York that about six months earlier with the delusion that it would take me about two years to figure out mm. if this was going to happen or not. And I was newly married. And we said, let's go up there and give it a couple of years. If it doesn't work out, we'll go back and we'll see. We got to go try. And so that idea of 10 years was like the scales fell from my eyes. And that was a whole perspective shift. And I was able to come home and talk to my wife and say, look, I think it's actually going to be more like 10 years. Are we prepared for that journey? Are we, are we together pre prepared for that? I think a lot of the struggles, you and I have both mm -hmm. seen marriages fail, friends leave, things fall apart for people. And I think a large part of that is because of expectations. You think it's going to be one thing, but it's really going to be something else. And therefore, your expectations are unmet. That's where problems start. And about two years in, the person's like, when, what's going on? When, when are you going to give up your silly dream? and move on with whatever. So so I was able to go home and say, okay, how about it's more like 10 years. Are we down for this? And we were like, yeah, let's keep going. So seven years later, I made that Evening Sun. But that was an indie film. It made it for a million dollars. And I worked on it for five years. I made a sum total of $20,000 in that film. $20,000 will last you five weeks in Los Angeles, as you know. So it's... <laughs> It's not like I was living on that money. So, and even though that movie got me an agent and it got me all that stuff and it won awards, it was just a little indie film. So you couldn't take that film and then parlay that into writing some big movie because it just wasn't that. It was a, about an old guy on a farm. So cut to two years later, I'm dead broke, haven't done another thing yet, can't get anything off the ground. And I'm mm. desperate. And I, I have at that point, I have three young kids at home mm. and I'm broke. I'm getting very hopeless. And so I called a friend who I knew produced reality television. And I said, I, I got to have a job. I, I need something. And he mm. gave me this job very graciously. And they sent me down to, to West Texas to direct a reality TV show. And... You know, and it was a really, 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 really hard, hard, hard experience for me. I, I didn't like what we were doing. Um, wow. I was, I was alone in West Texas for the summer. And mm. the people there, um, it was tough. It was really tough. Mm. So, and I got really despondent there and thought, mm. this is probably it. You, know, you put a camera in front of someone who knows they're supposed to be entertaining on a it's like pouring gasoline on a fire. And then they wanted more gasoline on that fire to do these outrageous things that I found sort of reprehensible. And I found myself being asked to, whatever, direct this stuff. I couldn't. I, I, so I spent a lot of time. I prayed about it. I talked to my wife about it. I was really torn about it. And I said, I, have, I can't do this. But yet we had all these bills to pay. And we said, look, we're going we're gonna to have faith. We're going to trust that something 
better will come out of this if you really if you really can't do it. I don't I don't want to put bad stuff into the world. I don't want to make the world a worse place by the stuff I put into it. And I was so grateful to my friend and I didn't want to let him down. He had gone out on a limb to give me a break. I felt terrible about that I was going to say, I don't believe in what you're doing here. It was really hard. And I came back home and I left that job early. I got home and about a month later, I got my first studio gig, writing a job that came out of that. And that was the fall of 2011, which was exactly 10 years after I took Act One. And I haven't stopped working since. Wow. The 10-year rule is the takeaway from that. <laughs> so unmet <laughs> expectations is really, really important. You know? Pro- properly mm. calibrated expectations I think are the key mm. to life in general, but especially to a relationship. At the end of your life, what kind of legacy would you like to leave behind? You know, I want to be known that I was an honest person, that I had integrity, that I was kind. Mm. And that I put something of value into the world. So that's really, mm. if I can do that, if I can get one of those things, that'll be a success. I'm aiming for all of them. We'll see how it goes. (laughs) Fantastic. Well, thank you so much for being my guest, Scott. I really appreciate hearing about your journey and your work as a filmmaker. Thank you for just being so open about your life. Yeah, it was fun. If you work in entertainment, be sure to check out the complimentary courses and other resources available at navigatinghollywood.org. There are courses for pre-marriage and marriage and the Alpha Hollywood course, which gives entertainment professionals the chance to explore faith while building community. You can find out more at navigatinghollywood.org. Please follow us and leave us a review so others can discover this podcast. You can find our other shows, transcripts, links, and more at navigatinghollywood.org. I look forward to being with you next time.